think it's important to start thinking about areas first. Once you know your area, then it's important to start speaking to agents, other investors, networking in the area to find out a bit more about it. Once you've done your research on the area, then it's important to get estate agents on board, lettings agents on board to see how much demand there is, etc. And then that will help you with the sourcing side of things. So you need good sources or estate agent relationships built to get the property on board, to build that relationship with them so that they ring you when there's a property available or, you know, they'll trust your offer more and put it forward to the vendor, etc. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there. In this episode, number 82, we hear from an expat couple who started their property story in Singapore, but recently moved to Switzerland and have a mixture of standard buy-to-lets and HMOs in Barnsley, Liverpool and Ipswich. It's not often you hear those five locations in the same sentence. Before we hear from Natasha, whose words of wisdom started the show, and her husband Suresh, I have a few announcements to make. The first is about the lucky draw we organised to celebrate our new website at www.expatpropertystory.com. If you remember, during our three-part special about the deals that made us a paper profit of £126,000 in just two days, friend of the podcast Bronwyn Vernkham kindly offered to donate five copies of her book, Building Your Dream Life, How Property Can Help You Quit the Rat Race. Well, we printed out the names of everyone on the mailing list and painstakingly cut them up and put them into a hat. Well, a bowl, actually. And the winners were picked out and we've written to them for details of where to send the books. So check your inbox to see if you're one of the lucky ones. And if you're thinking of joining our mailing list but haven't got round to it just yet and you want to get a free copy of our 23-step guide to analysing an auction deal, then don't delay too long as it may not be there forever. And just in case you need reminding, the place to go is www.expatpropertystory.com. And that's also the place to go to get in touch, which more and more of you have been doing. And I've been able to help a few people recently, usually by putting them in touch with someone better placed than myself to help them. And with no incentive for me beyond the concept of what goes around comes around. And I've also met up with a couple of listeners here in Hong Kong, where I've started a semi-tradition of meeting up for a late Saturday morning coffee at the Urban Bakery in the Landmark Building in Central, which I'm now calling my office. This coffee shop was introduced to me by one of our Hong Kong listeners who has a platform called Property Saucer and we'll be hearing from him in a few weeks' time. Suresh Mystery and his wife Natasha met at Warwick University and they first became expats in 2015 when they moved to Singapore after buying a couple of properties in London, one a buy-to-let and the second their family home, which they also rented out ahead of their move to the Far East. We started, however with their property song. There's a Thailand property disc. One I would say that I was listening to recently was an Oasis song, Don't Look Back in Anger. There's often been times in this journey where I guess hindsight is a key thing. And, you know, you often look back and sometimes you're like, oh, why did I make that decision? Or why didn't we do it another way? Why didn't or, we do it sooner? Exactly. So there's always those sorts of elements. And I think that song, I mean, I was listening to it on a flight the other day, but it kind of triggered some of those thoughts. So that's what comes to mind. Their first expat purchase was a buy-to-let in Barnsley. Initially, it was Suresh who was the more involved of the couple in their property business. One of the great things about being an expat and living abroad is 
you know, generally you can accumulate savings quite a bit faster than what you can in the UK. And I think we got to a point in 2017 where we were evaluating, again, our circumstances and, you know, really looking back at the two properties we had. And we said, look, I mean, these are performing extremely well. Capital appreciation has been absolutely amazing. And, you know, rental income is strong. So why don't we venture a bit more into this, given, you know, we have the expertise now in in the UK as well. And that's when the whole evaluation came up around investment areas, what strategies were out there. I think in 2017, there was a a lot more education in terms of property investment than there was in 2009. And that really allowed us to get, you know, really educated from more a business perspective than just a pure investment perspective. And that's when we then bought a third buy to let. And again, that was bought through a sourcer in the UK, but again, at a relatively good value to where we saw other properties in the area or even the same block, i.e. it was a direct vendor with the sourcer. How did you find the sourcer? Through recommendations, actually. I had a couple of people I knew that had used the sourcer in the past, got in touch, understood their sort of business model a bit better, how they operate what value they bring above just looking on Rightmove, for example. They found one property that was relatively hands-off, meaning had an existing tenant, no works needed on the property, was purchased at a price that they and I felt was sort of below market value at the time. And yeah, it was kind of a fairly easy process. I mean, that also woke us up a bit to the concept of expat mortgages, which we hadn't done at that point. So realizing that the availability of mortgages and the rates weren't the same as what you would get as a UK resident, understandably. But again, that really then opened our eyes to the learning process around investing in UK property from abroad. Did you find your area and then look for a sourcer or did you find a sourcer and he recommended the area? It was a bit of both, to be honest, and maybe not just the sourcer, but it was also just doing independent research. I mean, at that point, we were still very much focused on buy to let given it was an easier strategy to manage when you're both in corporate jobs and you're living abroad. So there it was just around looking at fundamentals. You know, as you can imagine, at that point, London was was extremely high priced and relatively low yield. So I find it's probably one of those places that when you're on the ground, you can find good deals, but you know, living abroad, it can be quite capital consumptive. Initially, we were fine to stay with buy to lets We then bought our first one in, in Liverpool. Believe it or not, that was through a sourcing message that was put out on Facebook through one of the groups that we had joined. And of course, you know, you always take those with a pinch of salt. And we looked into it. It checked out. It was, again, a direct vendor, a very attractive price and not so much work that needed required. And that really started that journey. So in my experience, quite a lot of expats seem to invest in Liverpool but Liverpool seems very scary to me because one end of the street can be completely different to the other end of the street from what I can gather. Did you really drill down into the area? There's a lot of talking to people and getting that confidence. So speaking to a lot of estate agents in the area, speaking to sources and other investors as well, just to get that confidence that where we are investing is actually the place and the right place to invest and nothing that we have to worry about. Because obviously being expats, it is, like you said, a bit daunting because you don't actually see the property. You're not walking down the street. So you don't get that visibility, but we also got somebody to view the property for us, somebody reliable, the estate agents, the sourcer, other investors. So just getting that confidence really helped. 
So you'd already decided at that stage that you wanted to invest in Liverpool or you just saw this deal on Facebook and then started to look at the research? We identified that as, let's say, one of the locations that we liked. It had good prospects in terms of rental demand. I think the market at the time was, I would say, relatively low, if I can put it that way, compared to maybe some of the other areas, but yields were good. But exactly as you mentioned, I think the key with Liverpool is it's very focused on a road-by-road basis, not even area-by-area. It's almost road by road. We really had to dig into speaking to people that either were living in those areas or that were investing in those areas. And it was a bit of a mixture. After buying a couple of buy-to-lets in Liverpool, they started to think about ramping up their portfolio. By this stage, they had started a family and Natasha had left her corporate job to look after their children and spend more time on their business. When I was moving from corporate into property at that point, we started thinking along, okay, first replacement of income, second, giving me something that's a bit more challenging because obviously, as you know, HMOs are a bit more demanding on your time. They require a little bit more investment in terms of knowledge and expertise as well. So we had a couple of buy-to-lets and we were continuing down that route. But at that point, we thought, okay, let us just try and understand a little bit more about HMOs and see if that's something that will work for us. And I think that's when we started doing a bit more research into HMOs and doing that training and education on it, et cetera, to just bring us up to speed and decide whether that would be the route for us. In order to understand their new business model, they got some paid help. We signed up to a mentorship with someone who was extremely experienced with HMO investments. And then we really dug into some of the details around what to look out for. So things like your usual stats, employment, population size, you know, is there a sort of university and companies close by proximity to public transport, general demand, speaking with HMO agencies. So actually, that was quite a considerable amount of research that we did. Why? Because exactly to Natasha's point, we wanted to make sure we got it right. And also, I think the idea was that HMOs would then in the future form the core part of our business. Because again, when you're looking at income substitution, Natasha's skill sets is project management orientated. It just fitted the bill very well. Is Ipswich Article 4? No, they are contemplating it. And was that a big factor in your choice? Yes. Yeah, a factor for sure. I mean, Article 4, as you know, it doesn't limit you from necessarily developing a HMO. It certainly makes it a bit more uh, challenging. But having an area where they were considering it, but not yet implementing it, actually, that was quite attractive in itself. You know, if you are able to build a portfolio, I guess, prior to them implementing Article 4, then once they've implemented it, and of course you would get reasonable notice if they were to, then it would make the values of the properties or the HMOs that you own that much more valuable because barriers to entry are a lot higher in that market. With HMOs now forming the core strategy of their business model, do they have a cookie cutter model they follow going forward? We're currently going for the six bed model right now because it just seems to work for us in terms of not requiring planning permission, etc. I think what we've done to date seems to be working. We've developed our relationships. We know how we want to design our rooms that's working. We definitely have all our contacts in place, etc. So we kind of just keep going back to them instead of spending time on looking for new ones now because we've developed that relationship, etc. So I definitely think it's become a lot easier to just lift up what we've done and put it into other HMOs now, for sure. People say that most of the profit is in the sixth bedroom. Would you agree with that? I'd say fifth and sixth. What we found was a lot of the houses, unless you did a considerable extension, you would only really get to around seven bedrooms. And then when you weigh up the cost of that, and especially the fact that you would then end up with commercial valves, which 
again, were relatively unpredictable at the time and maybe not so much more rent because there would need to be some compromise in terms of structure. We felt it didn't work out well. Whereas you can have three beds that can be geared quite easily towards six beds. You can also optimize in terms of timing of the renovation without having to go through planning, etc. Are they all en suites? We are going down that route. So our first one had four en suites and one shared bathroom between six bedrooms. So two rooms shared one bathroom. And I think the second one was the same. We appreciate there's more demand for en suites coming up. So we're trying to build six bedrooms and six en suites in. Do you worry about the idea of council tax banding or council tax for each individual room rather than for the whole house? Is that rumoured to happen in Suffolk at all or not? There's always discussions around it. Firstly, I think there's a lot of work going on around ensuring that council tax banding for HMO rooms doesn't happen. So we're quite on board with the discussions around that. One of our mentors is sort of leading that process, which helps. But I think what we've realized is we try and avoid making it very self-contained. I know some people, for example, put very small kitchenettes and other things in rooms. I mean, we try and make the communal areas really communal in in a sense of having a kitchen and, and dining space and leave the room separate. So for now, I mean, touch wood, we've not really seen anything around that in the area. What's going through your mind with high interest rates? What's your attitude towards analyzing deals and thinking about the future? So at the moment, what we're trying to do is we're obviously basing our number analysis on the higher rates that we're getting. So we're factoring all of that in. And along with that, we're also trying to work with our managing agent to see what kind of rental yields we can push our HMOs to. So make them higher living HMOs with a bit more rent coming in to make up for the higher interest rates as well. And utility bills have obviously gone up. All the utilities are included in the rent, are they, for you? They are. We're trying to make sure the property's a lot more airtight, insulated, etc. now so that we are conscious that, you know, we want to make sure that the bills are lower going forward or we can manage them a bit better in terms of the heat, that the heating bills that are coming our way. You've had to push up your rents, have you, with inflation and everything? Rents will have to go up, frankly. I mean, there's no other way of doing it. When you think of HMO investors, they've been hurt really on three bases. I mean, one is acquiring properties that are a lot more expensive than what they used to be. Not necessarily a bad thing. Energy costs, as you've mentioned, and also financing costs. So those three, I mean, by no means is a rental increase necessarily going to offset that completely. But it does help in terms of just making sure that we at least earn returns that would be better than we could otherwise deploy to other means. Again, there's various ways to manage it. For example, installing smart meters and thermostats, etc., making sure properties are insulated, using appliances that are better rated than what the cheaper alternatives would be. So there's little things like that that we're trying to do to help the situation. Suresh and Natasha were in the middle of another property purchase as we spoke. What's your attitude towards the mortgage that you're going to apply for? Are you going for a five-year fix or are you going for two-year fix? What are you thinking? Of course, the expat mortgage market is a lot more limited than what it is to other residential investors. We're starting to see snippets now of other lenders starting to open up products more to expats. You know, we went through quite a period where it ended up being quite limited and closed and people pulling their products. It's starting to come back a bit. For now, we're funding via our own savings and a bit of investor money uh, as it stands today. I think the idea would be then to evaluate a bit better to see what we can do. Now, we always like to do five-year fix. I think for us, it helps in terms of just being able to have that consistency there, even if we have to pay a slight premium. 
But I mean, what we're seeing with swap rates and other things today, I mean, two years tend to be actually higher than, than five years for the ones that we've seen recently, which is quite interesting. But yeah, five years would typically be the preference. What advice would you give to people looking to get started as expat property investors? I think the most important thing is to build a team of people that you can rely upon. Um, I think it's very easy to rush into it and work with people that maybe are not as professional, not as easy to work with from abroad. We spent a lot of time researching people, looking into reviews, having conversations with them prior to working with them. And I think that's actually paid off now because I think we have really good people that we're working with, really good relationships with them. And I think as an expat investor, that is absolutely key because they are our eyes and ears on the ground. They are there when a problem arises, not us. Um, so we need someone that we can call who can solve the problem for us. Um, and I think that's some, it's been invaluable investing in making sure that we've got the right people working with us. So your team out there is the most important thing. In what order would you do that? Because I know that there's a lot of expats listening who you know, are really trying to work out how to get started. They don't really know where to start. What order would you recommend that they do that in? So I think it's important to start thinking about areas first. Once you know your area, then it's important to start speaking to agents, other investors, networking in the area to find out a bit more about it. And then following on for that, once you've done your research on the area, then it's important to get estate agents on board, lettings agents on board to see how much demand there is, etc. And then that will help you with the sourcing side of things. So you need good sources or estate agent relationships built to get the property on board to build that relationship with them so that they ring you when there's a property available or, you know, they'll trust your offer more and put it forward to the vendor, etc. So once you've got the agent on board and, you know, you've got the actual property, then it's things about architect, builders, again, um, having a good project manager for yourself to work with who can actually make sure everything's happening in the right order and as you expect it to. So architects, building control as well. I think it's all important to have all of these tradespeople on board in a good relationship with you once you've actually got the property on board. When you're targeting HMOs, are you looking for someone who is going to source, project manage and manage the property as well? I think in terms of sourcing, we are getting quite hands-on and trying to do it a lot ourselves as well. We do have relationships with sources, so if something comes up, we're quite open to it. But given I'm doing it full-time now as well, so we are spending a lot of time on right move and speaking to agents ourselves to source the properties. Project management, yes, I think it's quite important given we're not there. Someone that could just oversee the works for us and make sure it's as expected, etc. What do you wish you knew when you started that you know now? I think specifically with being an expat property investor, I think one is just expectation. Will a project be 100% like we would like it to be had we been on the ground? No. Sometimes you go into these things wanting everything to be perfect, cost to come in on budget, etc. And the truth of it is managing it from thousands of miles away, even if you have someone on the ground, is never going to be exactly how you want it. It's never perfect. How are you guys managing to systemize your business, be more efficient in terms of running a business, living abroad? That's more difficult, right? Especially as a full-time mum and a full-time you know, employee, right? We talk a lot about systemizing. There's only limited time we have to allocate to the business. I think one thing we did from the very start is make sure all our documents, et cetera, were in order. So we use technology such as Google Drive to make sure we have synced up folders, et cetera, for all our properties, et cetera. So we know where all our information is stored. So that's one thing. I guess connecting with the UK, et cetera, from abroad. So we've got a virtual landline as well so that we can do that a lot easier. We've got zero software. 
set up already. So again, all these were extra costs that we had to think about up front, but we've invested in it just because we want to make sure that it's all set up for the long term. The first thing to pick up on from today's episode is Natasha's advice for those looking to start their own expat property story. And it's to perhaps begin with an area you're interested in and start having conversations with people who specialise in that area. So other investors, estate agents and sources, anyone really, who can help you to build up a picture of your chosen location. And if you're thinking of HMOs, looking in places mooted to introduce Article 4, like Ipswich, might not be a bad idea either. The second point of interest was Suresh and Natasha's decision to use a mentor, which seems to have worked well for them. If this is something you're thinking of doing, I would tread extremely carefully here and do lots of due diligence. I get emails from people looking for advice, which I'm happy to help with if I can. And if not, I can point them in the direction of someone better placed than myself to advise them. But there's no way I would position myself as a mentor after only five years property experience. So consider getting paid help but only with prudence. Natasha said that they spent a lot of time researching the people who they wanted to work with, looking at reviews and having conversations with them before working with them. And today's final takeaway is the idea put forward by Suresh to manage your own expectations for your property story. Things will not always go to plan, but by getting started and taking action, then re-evaluating and taking action again, slowly but surely, you'll get to your goal if you just keep going. See if you can guess this week's exotic listener location from its original name, which was Andoverpia. It was later called Andonerbo, and after that, Andoverpis. Did you guess? Well, it's in Belgium, and it's now more commonly known as Antwerp. If you're our listener in Antwerp, or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to check out our website at www.expatpropertystory.com. And while you're there, why not sign up to our mailing list to make sure you get a copy of our 23-step guide to analysing an auction deal and to receive our monthly newsletter. Thanks to Natasha and Suresh for appearing and to you for listening. Next week, we're off to sunny Scarborough to meet luxury holiday let specialist Louise from Local Properties because we do like to be beside the seaside of North Yorkshire. Join us next week to find out why. And finally, of course, to help us grow our humble little community, share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property Story.